terrorists very rarely start with terrorism. Typically, when you go back and study the history of a terrorist movement, there have been plenty of potential off-ramps before it comes to the point where there is violence. That's what terrorists are trying to do. They're trying to create this environment where you are actually pouring fuel on the fire rather than dousing the flames. What I would say is violence very rarely solves anything, and very few good things come out of violence long-term. Violent revolutions don't tend to give birth to stable states. Hello, everyone. That was the voice of today's guest, Tom Parker. Tom is the author of Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. This is a book based on his experience working in both counterterrorism and human rights for organisations such as the United Nations, the European Union and Amnesty International. The interview begins with Tom explaining how a direct experience of terrorism led him into this work. I'm an investigator by background. I went into investigations in the British Security Service because I was blown up in an IRA terrorist attack. So I started, my interest in terrorism started with a bang, literally, um, and wanting to essentially uh, do something practical to stop terrorism. Um, and for me, that was joining the British Security Service, which is, for your listeners, broadly speaking, the UK's equivalent of the FBI, although it is not a law enforcement agency. So it's kind of like a domestic CIA. The US doesn't really have anything quite like it. Um, and my role within that was essentially to be an investigator. I worked on a range of different uh, targets from uh, counterespionage through uh, counterterrorism. And I was seconded to the police where I worked on organized crime. So I'm a you know, uh, an investigator that, that was focused on criminal activity of one sort or another. Um, so that, that was my entry point to this. And if I'm absolutely honest, as a young officer, I wasn't particularly reflective about the task. I was very clear on who the good guys were and very clear on who the bad guys were until I started working on Northern Ireland. And one of the things that the security service does very, very well is train its people and bring its people um, to a level of understanding about the uh, organizations that they're working on and why they exist and where they come from. And the security service has this thing called the Northern Ireland Background Briefing Course, or it used to, we're talking 30 years ago now, um, where you went away for a week with a bunch of colleagues and they gave you uh, a variety of different perspectives on um, why there was a conflict in Northern Ireland. Um, and I vividly remember coming out of that on a Friday afternoon and thinking, and bear in mind, as somebody who had been blown up by the IRA, I was not what you might consider sympathetic to their point of view. I remember coming out of that briefing course on Friday afternoon, heading to the pub, thinking, my God, no one hates us. And that was a really profound moment for me because I hadn't really ever thought of the other side's arguments. And that's not to say that I thought what they were doing was right. And it's not to say that I thought what they were doing uh, was justified. Um, but it meant that I understood that terrorist threats don't fall out of the sky, uh, clear blue sky. They are generated by interactions between one group and another group. Um, and there are always multiple perspectives on why people think what they think. Um, and while we may often condemn the methods that people use to advance their cause, it can be very, very hard uh, and, and possibly short-sighted to um, reject that cause out of hand because there will be some merit to some people in that cause, regardless of what that cause is. And if you want to effectively combat that cause, you have to understand that. Effective response starts with understanding. Um, and that means keeping an open mind. 
and not um, bringing preconceived notions and more importantly, preconceived solutions um, to the fight immediately. You know, you need to take time to understand the problem, understand the parameters of it, understand the drivers of it, and then come up with appropriate tactics and strategy to address those issues in a way that you can reduce the level of terrorism. Terrorism, like crime, is going to be almost impossible to, to eliminate completely. So you know, your primary goal in counterterrorism is to reduce rather than eliminate the level of violence, at least as a first step. And then hopefully over time, you get to a point where there is a decline in the amount of activity. And hopefully by addressing the underlying causes of violence, you get to a point where the violence itself goes away. So let's encapsulate on that point regarding uh, the employment of, of terrorism itself, because you write in chapter one that the strategic use of terrorism has evolved very little since it appeared on the world stage in the 19th century. And you quote Bruce Hoffman here, mm -hmm. quote, terrorism is designed to create power where there is none or to consolidate power where there is very little, end quote. Can you can you talk about that for a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, terrorism is often referred to as the weapon of the weak, and, and that's an absolutely true observation. Um, there is no terrorist organization on earth that has a fraction of the military power of the weakest government. Um, so terrorists have to design alternate strategies to advance their political cause beyond meeting the enemy on the battlefield, because that will not end well. Um, so what terrorism essentially is, is a contingent political tactic. It sets out to push a selection of buttons um, and to pursue a, a selection of strategic or tactical goals. Um, and what I've argued in the book is essentially there are six goals that you can see and uh, that collectively come together to form what I, what I refer to as terrorist doctrine. Um, and this is something that we can see basically in terrorist writings and communications. And terrorists are pro prolific self-publicists. It is a form of politics. You know, Clausewitz famously said that war is a continuation of politics by other means. Terrorism, likewise, is a continuation of politics by other means. Um, so it is a form of communication. And to that end, terrorists have evolved basically a doctrine that sets out to um, uh, put a number of tools at their disposal that have, you know, over the past 160 years been successful in some circumstances and not successful in others. Right, so this isn't a guaranteed strategy for success. It's simply a toolbox that has been used by marginalized groups to uh, basically get their cause on the political agendas of the states that they are in contestation with. Um, so that what I describe in the books is essentially that there are these six core themes, asymmetrical warfare. This is you know, essentially a, uh, an analog to guerrilla warfare. You fight the enemy where they're weakest. Um, you don't meet the enemy head on, you look for um, particular areas of vulnerability, and you try to use the enemy's strength against them in a multitude of ways. One thing is simply it is very hard to stay on alert for an extended period of time to, to maintain the level of, say, foot patrols or uh, physical presence on the streets. All this costs money, um, and it is exhausting and tiring for the military or security forces uh, that are trying to defeat terrorism. The terrorists, meanwhile, can go home and you know, relax for two weeks because they know when, when they're going to come back. The state doesn't. So asymmetry can be a very, very powerful tool. Um, attrition is very closely allied to asymmetry. 
Um, at the end of the day, it's cheaper to be a terrorist than it is to be a state. So asymmetry comes in a variety of different forms. There's physical asymmetry, but there's also financial asymmetry. Um, there uh, can be an asymmetry in morale. Um, there is a morality asymmetry. People don't expect terrorists to behave very well. The clue's in the name. They do expect states to live their values. And when states don't live their values, it's very, very damaging to them. Um, so most terrorists understand they're in it for a long fight. Most terrorists are also up against democracies that think in five-year cycles. Terrorists tend to think generationally. Um, and that's a very, very powerful tool. So, you know, even if you go back to very, very early sort of um, theorists in the terrorist field, people like, uh, for example, O'Donovan Rosser, uh, the United Irishman, you know, they're very early on understanding that if they can make it too expensive for the UK to stay in Ireland, the UK will leave. At the end of the day, this is true of almost any colonial situation. You know, colonization is a financial proposition. It's an economic proposition. You do it to make money for your society. Um, you don't do it for prestige alone. And the second it becomes impractical or too expensive to maintain a presence in a country, there's a strong likelihood people will leave. Um, so if you can create that sense over a period of time, you're likely to wear down the will and the commitment um, of a state to stay the course. And we saw that, for example, most recently in Afghanistan, um, mm -hmm. where basically the United States was looking to get out of Afghanistan from the end of the Bush administration. Um, you know, Obama would have got out if he could have done. Trump, I think, basically ultimately failed the, 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 the courage and moral test of sorting things out himself. But he did create a circumstance where it was impossible for the Biden administration really to do anything other than leave. Um, and, you know, ultimately what you saw was an erosion of American will to stay. You saw the Taliban being willing to outlast um, not just American, but, but NATO, Westerns determination to stay um and ultimately they live there and we don't there's that famous quote that, that's often attributed to the the taliban you have the watches we have the time um that's kind of attrition um our third thing is propaganda by deed this is something that comes out of anarchism but again it's this idea that the violence is political communication that you can teach people through actions you can send messages through actions um then we have the revolutionary prototype or martyrdom you know, the creating people who inspire other individuals. You know, the great example of that is Osama bin Laden himself. You know, here's a man with a very carefully curated uh, image. You know, every video that he appears, he's careful about how he dresses. He's careful about the weapon that he carries, the, the circumstances that you see him in. You know, typically when you see bin Laden in a video, he's got a Packle hat, the Afghan hat, to remind you that, you know, he's a veteran of the, the war against the Soviets. He carries an AK-74, not an AK-47, an AK-74, which is a Russian paratrooper Spetsnaz weapon um, to remind you that he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Spetsnaz. He often wears a camouflage jacket, again, to remind you that he's a fighter. He often appears in a very rural aesthetic setting to remind you that he's out there on the front lines fighting. Um, Al-Zawahiri, by contrast, because he's aiming for something different, he often appeared in front of bookshelves to try and impress you with his learning and his religious gravitas. Um, you know, th these are deliberate uh, decisions. Michael Collins was quite famous for, back in the day, so Michael Collins, a, 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 an Irish revolutionary in the, the 19 teens uh, and early 20s, very early 20s. Um, he was quite famous uh, during the negotiations with the British government that led to the creation of the Irish Free State for knowing to freeze long enough for the camera image 
to capture him in a pose, whereas a lot of other people were still moving around. You know, he understood the value of staying still for the photography technology of the day to get a good picture that put him at the center of events and you could see him as the, the sort of the star of the picture. Ter you know, terrorist leaders are very, very good at image curate curation. Um, then we have um, uh, contesting legitimacy. We're coming to the two really important ones, right? Yeah. Ultimately, every terrorist um, is trying to argue that they're right and the people they're up against is wrong. Um, morally right, politically right, um, and they're trying to make that case every time they carry out an action. And they're trying to expose the opposite of that, the illegitimacy of the state they're fighting. This is what the, the Marxist uh, revolutionaries of the, the 60s and 70s, people like Bader Meinhof or Tupameros, they used to call this ripping the mask off the state. Um, you particularly saw this with the, uh, the German Red Army faction, Bader Meinhof, you know, where they, they were arguing, look, we, the fascists didn't go away, the Nazis are still here. And what we're trying to do is to push the German state into showing its true colors, um, which is you know, a brown color of, of Nazi Germany. And it's why they targeted a lot of people who had had political roles in Nazi Germany, like uh, Schleyer, the, 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 um, uh, the businessman who they, they, they kidnapped and murdered. Um, then finally, we have provoking an overreaction. At the end of the day, what terrorists are trying to do is polarize society. They want to force people to choose a side and they want to force more people to have to join their side. And they do that by provoking the government into, you know, putting the stick about, swinging, swinging truncheons. And there's this great quote from one IRA um, uh, leader called Des Long, you know, uh, every fella hit with a policeman's baton is a potential recruit, right? Um, you want to get to a situation where the state is driving um, like-minded or sympathetic people into your arms. Um, so the IRA would often, there's a famous uh, quote often attributed to the IRA, that the IRA's best recruiting sergeant is the British Army. And there's a tremendous amount of truth about that. It's incredibly hard to be a soldier on somebody else's streets and not give offence, not become the enemy. When the British Army deployed in Northern Ireland in, in the, 1969, the late 60s, they were deployed basically as a peacekeeping force to separate two warring sides. Um, the problem was one of the warring sides talked about being loyal, the loyalists. Um, they wore you know, red, white, and blue. Um, they believed in the monarchy. If you went into their neighborhoods, you'd see Union Jacks flying and curbstones painted red, white, and blue, which is you know, the colors that the British Army are wearing on their shoulder. Um, and if you went to an Irish neighborhood, a nationalist neighborhood or a Republican neighborhood in the North, you were seeing the Irish tricolor. You were seeing you know, orange, uh, white, and green curbstones. And people were not fans of the monarchy or, or fans of the kind of British institutions that most of the people serving in the British army thought they, you know, they believed in and they were there to uphold. So inevitably what happens is you start to draw closer and closer to the people who look like you, sound like you and espouse the same values as you, and you become more and more separated from the people who aren't like you. Um, it's impossible to search someone's house pretty much without leaving people with negative sentiments about you, right? It's very difficult to run a roadblock that people pass through without leaving people with negative sentiments about you. It's really, really hard to do any kind of aggressive counterterrorism policing without ultimately alienating people, without sometimes hassling the wrong people, arresting the wrong people, or having situations escalate to the, to, you know, beyond control where, where you end up with terrible outcomes like an innocent person being killed. Um, and so that's what terrorists are trying to do. They're trying to create this environment where you are actually pouring fuel on the fire rather than dousing the flames.
Um, and that is Terrorism 101. And it works pretty much every single time. If you look at the history, Louise Richardson, who wrote this great book called uh, What Terrorists Want, she this this was one of the inspirations for my book. I, it was a throwaway phrase in hers where she talked about the pathology of state overreaction. And I read that in I, 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 probably something like 2004 or 2005. Um, I forget when her book came out. And I, I thought, wow, that's a really interesting insight. I wonder if it's right. She just drops that phrase down there. She doesn't justify it or, 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 or provide any evidence of this. So I the sort of genesis of this book is I set out to disprove it. Um, and I couldn't find an example that disproved it. It was as simple as that. Even today, in the best part of almost 20 years later, about the only compelling example I can think of is Norway after Breivik. And, and I think the white supremacist threat in a white country is somewhat its own thing. Um, and it might be a little bit unusual and we see the same thing in the United States. I think it's very difficult for states to know how to respond to that particular threat, particularly in a polarized political climate of our own. Um, but take Brevik out of it, and Brevik's one attack, right? And there weren't any follow-up attacks. I mean, it's a relatively easy attack to steady the ship of state afterwards, but there was very, very strong leadership. But the same we saw from Jacinda Ardern after the New Zealand mosque attack as well. You had Jens Stoltenberg, I think it was in, in Norway, very, very strongly coming out and saying this attack won't change our society. Right. Um, much in the same way that you saw Jacinda Ardern coming out and saying, look, these are the ways we're going to respond. We're not even going to mention this guy's name. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to give him what he wants. That that kind of leadership can be incredibly powerful. Um, doesn't keep political leaders in office forever. Right. Jacinda Ardern's not in office anymore. And Stoltenberg didn't last very long either. Um, so there's often a political price to be paid from doing the hard, difficult thing. Um, whereas, you know, you, if you're up against somebody like, again, you know, I don't want to keep picking on Donald Trump, but he's so interesting because he always says the quiet bit out loud. There's this great quote from Donald Trump about waterboarding, right? Where he says, we should absolutely waterboard a terrorist. Um, uh, you know, and if it doesn't work, they deserve it anyway, right? Which, which sums it up because it doesn't work. It's then torture has got a pretty terrible track record as a way of gathering information from people. Um, waterboarding itself in the American context didn't produce any actionable intelligence. We have two voluminous um, Senate and, and House reports into the use of torture and uh, or enhanced interrogation techniques, frankly, which I would describe as torture by the US military and by the CIA. There's no evidence in either of those two voluminous reports of any actionable intelligence produced by these methods, uh, which is not that surprising because actionable intelligence is a, something you need to get quickly. Um, and, you know, the, 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 um, by the time most of these individuals were subjected to these kind of techniques, a lot of time had passed anyway. Um, but the reality is, is there's very, very little intelligence of any worth that came out of, you know, for example, waterboarding Khalid Sheikh Mohammed multiple, multiple times. Um, you know, he, he, he lied about plots that didn't exist to make people stop. He was explicit about this. We know this because he told it to the International Committee of the Red Cross and somebody leaked that. Um, and we know that, uh, courtesy of actually, I think, government uh, voices, that when he was asked about Osama bin Laden's courier, he lied about that too. In one of these wonderful moments from of, of completely asked about face thinking, I should probably think of a better way of putting that. Um, I think it was General Hyden who said, well, the fact that he lied proved, proved that, uh, and it probably did, right? The very fact that he was willing to lie under, un, under you know, the, the, the situations of simulated drowning. Um, just proved how important it was to keep this identity secret. Okay, well, that's an argument, but it's not an argument for torture working. 
right? It's the reverse. Um, so I find that really, really interesting. Um, so when we look at these things, what we can say about the US use of enhanced interrogation techniques is how incredibly damaging it was to, to America's image around the world. And you just have to see how synonymous orange jumpsuits are and some of those iconic pictures from Abu Ghraib mm. in terrorist propaganda. There, there's a fantastic quote from uh, General Petraeus about Abu Ghraib, where he says this, this, these sorts of things are non-biodegradable. They never go away. The enemy just keeps hitting you with them like a stick. Right. And that's a really good way to think about it. And that's not unique to, to the American experience. The French in Algeria use torture. They had a limited amount of, of, of success on very, very targeted questioning. So, you know, any, anybody who's been a journalist or run a podcast knows the difference between an open and a closed question. In a coercive environment, you can only really ask closed questions. Right. Very, very simple. Yes, no questions. Um, and in those circumstances, if you start a coercive interview with the wrong information, there's no way to re-correct, re, re, uh, to get back on a different track for the person you're interviewing to explain that you've misunderstood something. You're just going to bulldoze ahead with your preconceptions. And, and that's terrible intelligence gathering. You know, as a former intelligence officer, what I was trained to do was to get people talking, get people discursive, you know, lots of uh, what did you do next? How did that make you feel? Much like a psychiatrist would when they're sitting down with someone to get them talking and get them sharing. Because that's the environment where you get the opportunity to have somebody say, oh, why do you keep asking me about Peter? Um, John's the guy you should be asking about. That, that doesn't happen when you're drowning somebody, right? He's either going to tell you where Peter is or he isn't. There's, there's not going to be a discussion or a conversation. Now, rapport-based interviewing doesn't work every single time. Of course it doesn't. But it has no downsides. And when it works, it works better. Torture very rarely works. And I, in my book, have, I wanted to do this. I found tens, tens of examples of people who were tortured who didn't cooperate. And the more highly motivated the person is, the less likely they are to, to, to cooperate under torture. Um, and it comes with huge downsides, both for the reputation of the state, the mental health of the people doing it. If you look at some of the, we call it now, the psychiatrists call it moral injury. If you look at some of the people who were involved in the abuse in places like Abu Ghraib, very high instances of PTSD as a result. And PTSD often lands hardest on the people who feel guilty about what they did, um, rather than, than having things happen to them. I mean, it can obviously strike people different ways. And some people obviously are tremendously affected about things that are done to them when they have done nothing wrong. But we do know that the people who do get involved in doing things that they themselves know are wrong, it's very hard to process that. In the dirty war in Argentina, the, the regular Argentinian military used to refer to the interrogators um, as the stained ones, because they were never the same way afterwards. And then the final thing you want to think about is that torture is an international criminal offense. There's no statute of limitations. And, you know, if you think your government is never going to change to your dying day, yeah, maybe, and you like the place you live, well, possibly you'll get away with it. But what I will say to people, and it's just about aging out now, but we still had a case last year, is we're still prosecuting Nazis. And that is the level of crime you are committing when you torture somebody. So, you know, if you're a young person, which you are likely to be if you're a soldier or a policeman, probably in your 20s, um, you know, you're going to have to live with what you did for another 50 or 60 years. Um, and with all the changes of government that come and go with that, with all the things you might want to do in your life. Um, so there is a tremendous price to be paid for using this tool and very, very little to gain. And in those kind of cost-benefit analysis were the things I wanted to look at in the book, because the human rights community doesn't talk about that. Hmm. Because the human rights community wants to talk about morality, they want to talk about law. 
as they should. So they're making an argument, okay, you signed up to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, you signed up to the Convention Against Torture, and you're breaking that, and that is wrong. And that is absolutely right, and a totally great argument to make. The thing is, is it doesn't tend to persuade many people who didn't agree with that in the first place. And, and since the people who are often committing these acts are the soldiers, are the policemen, you've got to find arguments that resonate with them. And they're not bad people. Right. There are people who are trying to achieve an objective under enormous amount of stress. Ninety nine times out of 100, when you see abuse in an interview room, for example, it comes from frustration. It's not because the person's a sadist or a bad apple. It's because they're under a lot of pressure to get a result. And it intuitively makes sense on some level to a lot of people like Donald Trump, that if we, we waterboard somebody, they're going to tell us the truth because wouldn't you? Um, but the evidence doesn't tell us that happens. Not very often. Um, so that's the kind of conversation that I thought would be persuasive that I wasn't seeing anywhere. And one thing that you you left out of my bio is as well as having been, um, you know, an intelligence officer, I also worked for Amnesty International for three and a half years. So during the first Obama administration um, was a monitor in Guantanamo. So I used to go down to Gitmo as well and was involved in a lot of the discussions that swirled around what to do about closing Guantanamo and drones and the sorts of things that were uh, political issues in the first Obama administration. Um, and so, you know, I got to see both sides of this argument. And I, what I saw was essentially a dialogue of the deaf. Neither side was hearing the other. Both sides were talking past each other. Both sides were talking about different value systems. And I wanted to write something that would be able to take um, the lessons learned in one value system and try and explain them in a way that the other value system would see merit in them. Um, and let other people make the argument about morality and right and law. Uh, and that's why I set out to do this, because I felt there was that sort of niche, that opportunity in the marketplace, as it were. Well, let's try and break down those points that you raise in the book and what you raised here today. And one of them is something that Adam, resonates with Adam, me. Can I, Adam, can I yeah, jump sure, in with a follow-up? Just two quick follow-up questions. So Please. one thing that occurs to me, because I think you're going to want something else in a minute, Adam, so I'll just pick up on two follow-ups from that. Yeah. One thing that occurs to me when you're saying about the, the overreaction that states have and Norway being the exception, um, popped into my head the, the London nail bombing of 1999. Now, mm -hmm. I don't remember a big reaction to that in the UK. And I wonder, does this say something about how we perceive the threat in terms of an Islamic threat in the UK feels kind of other, and it might be inherently more scary, and there could be this huge Muslim horde behind it, and you don't know how extensive this thing is, it covers the globe. Um, whereas I think that right-wing skinheads in the late 90s appeared like a declining force. It didn't appear like these were going to be the threat of the new century. So do you think that's like a factor in terms of how much threat is sort of almost aesthetically perceived in terms of the state's reaction? I, I think that's a really, really interesting question. I'm desperately trying to remember the facts of that. No, it was 1999, if I remember rightly. It was, yeah. David Copeland. Um, so, yeah, I think you raised some, and you kind of answered your own question, I think, a little bit. Um, it was such an outlier. Um, it wasn't part of a campaign. It was one person. Um, who was not particularly tied into any group. Um, for, the, for the folks listening to this, it was a guy who was a neo-Nazi. Um, he carried out a bombing at, um, it was at Electric Avenue, I think, in Brixton. Um, Brick Lane, which is a Bangladesh, uh, that's an Afro-Caribbean neighborhood. Uh, Brick Lane in, in East London, which was sort of a Bangladeshi neighborhood, and of a gay pub in Old Compton Street, I want to say, in central London, where he only actually managed to kill uh, a straight couple who got married that day whose best man had taken them to the gay pub as a joke 
after their wedding. So that that was that was what he did. Um, he was caught quite quickly. So the you know it was very terrifying, I think, for people in London for a two three week period. But at the same time, terrifying for people who were used to bombs going off. Okay, you'd had the Northern Ireland peace process basically since 1998. This is only a year later. Um, so the population of London was quite inured to terrorist threats. Um, and as I say, this this guy was caught pretty quickly, and he was a lone actor. Um, and if I remember rightly, he was turned in by his father, I think. Um, so he was caught on CCTV, um, on the baseball cap that his dad recognized, and it was dad who called the police, I think, if I'm, if I'm remembering it right. Um, so I do think it's one of those cases where it never gathered enough momentum to um, dominate the public consciousness. Plus, by 1999, you've already had the Al-Qaeda embassy bombings in Tanzania and um, uh, Kenya, and you are about to have the USS Cole bombing in 2000. So what you also have is a growing threat and a growing awareness of that threat. Um, at the time, I'd left the security service at the time, so I have no, no sort of insider insights about this. Um, but by the late 90s, the threat picture had shifted sufficiently to embrace um, the threat coming out of, uh, of Islamic extremism. And largely that was because of the nature of the two attacks in Africa. They were so brutal. They were so callous. Um, the willingness to, to maim and kill you know, dozens and dozens of Kenyans to try and kill a handful of Americans, that is, that, that is quite unusual in terrorism. Um, and right off the bat, that grabbed people's attention as to the nature of this threat being somewhat different to anything that we've seen before. Right. Um, the that's often used about Al-Qaeda is, you know, before Al-Qaeda terrorists wanted people at the table, Al-Qaeda wanted to blow up the table, right? So most terrorist groups had used uh, political violence as a political tool to bring governments to the negotiating table. Um, Al-Qaeda wasn't really trying to start a negotiation with anybody. Um, it was trying to terrify people into, into leaving places. And, and most political terrorist organizations in history, I think it's fair to say, I'm just thinking this through as I say it, are pursuing much more limited political goals. I mean, most terrorist organizations are not transnational in nature, or if they are, that transnationality is relatively limited. They are pursuing national goals. Um, Al-Qaeda was a transnational entity from the get-go, seeking transnational goals from the get-go. And that's quite unusual. So even if you were to look at international anarchism, for example, at the end of the 19th century, which was absolutely multinational, and where you did see terrorist attacks across borders, it was still comparatively rare for a Russian to carry out an attack in London or for a Frenchman to go to Moscow and carry out an attack. Um, most of the attacks within the international um, anarchist movement were carried out in the country where people were trying to overthrow a government. Probably the big exception to that would be the United States, where uh, the, the, the anarchist attacks that did happen, because America is such an immigrant community, um, was often associated with Russian immigrants, people like Alexander Berkman, or with the Gallianists, the, the Italian anarchists that, that were very, very active and probably carried out the Wall Street bombing uh, in the early 1920s. Mm. Um, and that led to the Palmer Acts. So I, I think it's a little bit different. I think that that transnational character in Al-Qaeda 
did change the way people were thinking about the terrorist threat. I think we were slow to catch up with the nature of the threat. Um, and Copeland was just such an outlier. Right. Um, but it's also fair to say, you know, right-wing terrorism never went away. Um, one of the arguments in our book, and, and we haven't touched on it, but there's there's a, a famous article about terrorism called The Four Waves of Terrorism by David Rappaport, who makes the argument that terrorism comes in waves. Um, and in my book, and with a colleague in an article that we wrote for the Journal on Terrorism and Political Violence, we argue that there are no waves. There are strains, and they ebb and they flow, but they're always there to a degree. So if you look to right-wing German extremism, for example, in the 80s and 90s, there's a series of bombings that take place in Germany. Um, Britain didn't have a particularly violent or extreme right-wing scene in the 1990s. There was a group called Combat 18. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that the only person killed by Combat 18 was a rival record dealer um, that was also in the in the far-right sort of music sphere. Um, but they never really, they beat people up, but they never really killed or murdered anybody that I can remember. Um, if we looked at American right-wing extremism, we'd see some incidents in the 80s and 90s, the obvious biggest one being Oklahoma City. Um, so, you know, it, it, the, these things, they come and they go. They very rarely disappear completely unless the political driver for that terrorism disappears completely. So when we see sort of wars of national liberation, obviously, if a country becomes independent, the political cause for which the people were fighting is gone. And you're probably going to see terrorism dissipate. You might not see political violence dissipate. And, you know, we see that in lots of states where the people who won, you know, Zimbabwe being a great case in, in point, you know, if you're used to killing people to get your way or to advance your political goals, once you're in power, it's not such a crazy thing to continue doing that. Okay. Um, and we often see that as well. Yeah, I'd like to maybe ask you about that later. The, the other follow-up I had for the moment, and this is something Adam and I have discussed back and forth quite a bit, and it particularly came home to me when I was producing a podcast on the Spanish-American War and then the U.S. invasion of the Philippines and the use of torture uh, on mm -hmm. Filipino uh, insurgent sense, like not entirely dissimilar to uh, waterboarding practice that was being used. And what struck me was the letters in the U.S. press, press and there's one particularly famous one from Mark Twain, where he deconstructs, I think you know what I'm, I'm going to say, he deconstructs the basis for torture. And this is ridiculous. If, if, you, if you start pumping water into a man's belly and threaten to kill him, then he's going to tell you anything you want to know. How are you going to discern, discern truth from fiction? So I'm thinking, gosh, this is over 100 years prior to Guantanamo Bay. And we have this kind of image of the CIA as this uh, super intelligent organization that can go around the world and overthrow countries and governments at the drop of a hat. And, you know, wh whether you think they're good or bad or gray, uh, they're not stupid people. So how can what was obvious to Mark Twain in the early 20th century not be obvious to the, the super sleuths of the CIA in the in the early 21st? And, and it's just sort of reinforced by you saying the kind of education you received from MI5, where you were uh, given a course on the different perspectives and then to have dialogue and so on. And this, this is not a new idea. So we either think that we're grossly overestimating the intelligence and capabilities of these people, or really they're being tortured to get them to admit to things they didn't do. Or in the case of Abu Zubaydah, there's reports that he was initially taken in and um, he started talking about having a connection to the, the Saudi government. And that's obviously not an acceptable answer. So you, if you bury him in a coffin for a few days, he comes out and it's actually, you know what? It was the Iraq government. So it's like, this is something that we've just gone round and round on. Were they being honest in the reasons they were using torture and they're just like really not as good as we think they are? Or was there a more conscious, nefarious reason for it? 
Mm, interesting question. Well, let's start by saying, if I, if I remember correctly, the general that was responsible for allowing waterboarding was discipline, which I find really, really interesting. So it would suggest that actually there was a stronger moral compass 100 years ago, perhaps, than there was in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Um, there were some really bad things that were done in the Philippines. Another thing I point out is we didn't really win in the Philippines. Um, and we had a complex legacy. So I, I, I go backwards and forwards. We, for me, can be either America or English, um, being being half and half. Um, but the U.S. did not ultimately, um, you know, had a brief imperial moment in the Philippines. Um, and it has left a very, very complicated legacy having withdrawn from the Philippines. Um, so... The, the methods that were used, and, and that I think, if I remember rightly, uh, included um, sewing people in, in pig carcasses and dipping, dipping bullets in pig's blood as well, um, ultimately didn't really result in particularly favorable outcomes. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say, your, your point about why on earth would the CIA do it? A um, couple of different things, right? The CIA is not a uh, an investigative entity. It's an agent running agency, right? Its job is to collect intelligence. That is not actually the same job as interviewing suspects, right? That's what policemen do. That's what the FBI do. That's their skill set. And if you look at how the people who actually did this for a living reacted, people like Mark Fallon, for example, who was the senior NCIS investigator in Guantanamo, they knew it was done. And the case that you're referring to, uh, Abu Zubaydah, the progress that was made with him was made by Ali Sufan, an FBI agent, and Mark Fallon when they were interviewing him. And it was when the CIA came in that he clammed up. Um, so, you know, first off, I think one of the things is people get outside their lane. And the CIA's lane is not interviewing suspects. Um, then leadership really, really matters. So, you know, we had this whole turn to the dark side moment with Dick Cheney. That is a hugely, hugely important moment because that sets the marching orders for everybody who works in government. That tells you how you get promoted and how you get fired, how you move up and how you move down. And then we had senior leaders, people like um, Kofa Black, you know, saying, I'm going to bring bin Laden's head back in dry ice. I mean, how juvenile a comment is that? And how unserious and how unhelpful, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's a man who's watched too many TV shows even though he's a vastly experienced CIA officer. Um, and I don't think you can set aside the emotion at the moment. Um, you know, 9-11 was, and we, I think, forget what that day was like for the people who lived through it. Um, my wife and son were flying out of Boston Airport in the morning of 9-11. Um, I was working for the UN at that point. I was a war crimes investigator in the Balkans. I was in Mostar in Bosnia. Um, and, it, you know, it took me eight hours to establish that my wife and son were not on one of the two planes that flew into the towers. My brother-in-law's a New York City firefighter. It took me, likewise, eight hours to make sure to discover that he was still alive. I still remember getting through to my sister, uh, sister-in-law and her telling me the first thing, she was brilliant. The first thing she said before she said anything else is everybody's okay. Um, you know, that was a really, really powerful experience for me. I can, I can feel myself getting slightly choked up even talking about it today, 20 years later. Um, and, you know, Politicians are human beings too. They're, they're just as prone to all of those emotions of anger, fear, um, aggression, uh, and the desire for revenge. What, what did, um, uh, what was Bush's comment? You know, uh, I hear you and soon everybody around the world is going to hear you. Well, he wasn't wrong about that. Um, but at the same time, that reaction kind of marks the beginning of American decline. Um, the thing about power is power is incredibly 
powerful in the abstract, it becomes less and less meaningful when you try and use it because power, power is never as strong as you think it is. China's learning that at the moment. Wolf diplomacy, wolf warrior diplomacy. And this, this kind of approach never works. It alienates everybody around you. You're not as strong as you think you are. And even when America was the colossus bestriding the world from a, a military standpoint, it still struggled to ultimately impose its will on two quite small countries with very little money and very few resources. Um, and that was the reality of American power when we actually tried to use it. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of things going on, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump to the assumption that there was a nefarious plan from day one. I think you have very bad leadership. You had some very bad assumptions made. Um, and I think Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney in particular carry a lot of responsibility for that. You know, and, and neither of them are stupid men. And Rumsfeld, there's a lot of quite thoughtful quotes from him. You know, he has that great quote about, um, you know, we need to understand whether we're killing more terrorists than we're making. Mm. We weren't, <laughs> is the short answer to that. But he didn't then take that policy insight further. Um, but it was the right question to be asking. And then there's another famous thing he says about the known knowns, the uh, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. Another great quote. We we didn't know what the second and third order effects were going to be of lots of things we did. This was, if you go back and you read, I, I used to teach a class on terrorism for, for about a decade in the in the in the in the first decade of the 20th century. And I'd often ask my students to read Condoleezza Rice's foreign affairs article um, that was written before the Bush administration came in. And she mentions terrorism three times in that article, only in the context of state sponsorship by Iraq and by Libya uh, and Iran as well, right? So, I mean, this is the mindset of the people coming in and then they have to do a 360 and change. Um, these were all people who, you know, Condoleezza Rice being a great example, who did great power politics and talked about states confronting states where things like aircraft carriers make a difference and strategic, you know, uh, nuclear missiles and so forth. Um, that is not small wars, wars and insurgencies. Um, you know, there weren't really any American experts uh, on, on, on those topics and certainly none of them at the top levels of American government. So, you know, I mean, I, I think you had um, some really, really bad knee-jerk decisions and some really bad leadership. The FBI should have led all of the invest investigations and interviews of people who were captured. Um, that should have been absolutely a basic principle. They should have been tried in federal court. If they had tried the 9-11 hijackers in federal court, they would have been convicted and executed a decade ago. You know, they are never going to be convicted. It's becoming increasingly clear in the military commissions. And that trial, by the way, I was there on the first day of the first hearing for that trial. I have had three jobs since then. It was 2011, mm. um, right? And this, this case hasn't even started yet. It's already the longest case in American judicial history, and it hasn't even started. And it probably won't because of the amount of redactions and, and evidence that cannot be shared. It's now, now everybody in the, the, the press this week, we're talking about plea deals so that the, the, the victims can actually ask questions of the individuals. Um, so that they get a degree of closure, because they haven't had a degree of closure for 20 years. That would not have happened if we'd gone to federal court. Simple as that. And it would not have happened if we hadn't tortured those people. Simple as that. So, you know, I mean, a lot of these really bad decisions, which were simply compounded and compounded and compounded, have cast really, really long shadows. 
Um, but I think it was hubris and arrogance uh, and misplaced aggression rather than any um, sinister uh, predetermined intent to, to reach a particular outcome. Um, which is not to say that some things might not have been covered up and some things might not have, you know, might have been considered politically inexpedient to, di to, to dig into uh, in greater detail. Mm. But I, I don't think that's why we're in the mess we're in. I think we're yeah. in the mess we're in because of bad leadership, bad decisions, um, uh, and a lot of foolish outcomes. Can um, I make, so a, <laughs> I make a, rever a reversal of points? Because you raise this issue in the book about asymmetrical warfare. Um mm. My question's a little bit long, so bear with me. Uh, you raised the issue of um, Osama bin Laden's 1996 fatwa, which was the declaration of war against the Americans occupying the lands of the holy places. Mm -hmm. Bin Laden actually was a voracious reader of Mao Zedong, and he's read the book on guerrilla warfare, which you uh, mentioned in the book, in which Mao Zedong writes with the first rule of guerrilla warfare is to engage uh, a stronger enemy, and when they withdraw, he advances. Well, in Osama bin Laden's declaration, he writes, quote, it must be obvious to you that due to the imbalance of power between our armed forces and the enemy forces of suitable means of fighting must be adopted, such as using fast moving forces operating in total secrecy. In other words, to initiate guerrilla warfare where the sons of the nation and, and not the military forces take part in it, end quote. Zawahiri uh, states that they must bleed America economically, poking mm -hmm. it so that it continues its massive expenditures on security, making America weak in regards. My question to you is, do you think they were successful employing these strategies? Yes, I do. Very successful. I mean, I would argue that 9-11 is by far and away the most consequential terrorist act in history. And it might actually be one of the most consequential political acts in history mm. in terms of the small amount of money spent to the impact and lasting impact that resulted. Um, sorry, I've got a dog trying to get up onto the bed here. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I would say, yes, they're absolutely 100% successful. Um, they adhere to all of the terrorist doctrine that we've been talking about. Um, and they pursue those goals because they were informed by previous iterations of terrorism and previous writings on terrorism from around the world. Um, and, you know, Bin Laden was a student of this. It wasn't just uh, Mao Zedong. He also read, for example, um, Giap, the, the Vietnamese general. Um, I often say to people, you know, you, you know, do you know who's quoted more in Al-Qaeda manuals than anybody else? It's Mao Zedong. It's not Mohammed. It's not Saladin. It's Mao. Um, so there is a, this sort of concept of contagion that we have with ideas, right? That the terrorists, we know they read about other terrorists. Uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri wrote a book called The Bitter Harvest, which was a political analysis of the Muslim Brotherhood and in, why it failed in, in, in Egypt. Um, Avram Stern, the, the guy who set up Lehi, the, the Stern gang, a uh, Jewish nationalist terrorist in the, in the 1940s in the British Mandate, you know, he actually translated a book from English called The Triumph of Sinn Féin about the Irish War of Independence. Um, Rory O'Brady, the, the, one of the, the, uh, the chief of the army council when the provisional IRA was created, gave a copy of Robert Tabor's book, The War of the Flea, which was about the Cuban Revolution, to every single member of the IRA's army council. Right? People learn from other terrorists, or Brevik, we, we've mentioned already, he cites extensively from the Unabomber's thesis in, in his manifesto. 
um, and actually talks about the Unabomber. Now, the Unabomber is not a right-wing extremist. He's uh, <laughs> possibly mentally ill, and he's somebody who's almost like a green extremist. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, he's anti-technology and, and um, was set off by seeing airplane contrails over his, you know, rural hideaway. Um, and road projects being built through virgin forests near where he lived. That was one of the things that, that sort of provoked him to carry out terrorist attacks. So very, very different to, to, to Brevik, but Brevik sees relevance to uh, in some of the things that, that the Unabomber did um, to, to his own cause and to what he's trying to achieve, which is white supremacy. Um, so, you know, there's definitely a sense in which bin Laden and al-Aziri had coherent plans that they were trying to achieve. We know this, and um, you're absolutely right. We know that Zawahiri talked about the economic cost of, of 9-11, and, that, and that's exactly the same thing that the IRA talked about as well. Um, there was a study done by um, uh, a British government agency in, in, in the 1990s that reckoned that for every pound the IRA spent, um, the British government had to spend 80. Um, now, I think that's a gross underestimation, actually. And, and I, I'm trying to think there was a, an Aspen um, security meeting where uh, one of Obama's uh, counterterrorism advisors talked about the financial cost um, per member of Al-Qaeda. So he's, he says, I'm going to get the numbers wrong because I don't have them in front of me. But it's, it's something like, you know, if we estimate that there are three to five thousand members of Al-Qaeda, the United States government, not counting the wars in Iraq, the cost of the actual wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, are probably spending something in the region of, I think it's over $234 million per individual member of Al-Qaeda. Hmm. Right? Now, that is not a sustainable conflict. Um, another one of my favorite comments, the, the, um, uh, the engineer, the, the Yayash, um, I can't think what his full name is, as a Palestinian uh, Hamas uh, bomb maker who was killed by the Israelis um, after he carried out, or after he prepared the suicide vest that we used in a couple of bus bombings. It's quite a famous case. He's the um, the, 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 the bomb maker that the Israelis killed by putting Semtex in his phone, getting a phone into, a, into his hand that they then detonated while he was on a phone call. Um, now, he ultimately became involved in Hamas because he'd wanted to go and study electrical engineering in Jordan, and the Israelis wouldn't give him an exit permit. And the former head of Shimbet, after this case, famously said, if we'd known what he was going to do, I would have given him a million dollars and driven him to the airport. Mm. Mm. You know, I mean, this is this is the thing. You know, it's those second and third order consequences that you don't anticipate and you don't realize are going to happen that, that always end up biting you in the behind. It's, you know, I, I find it fascinating that a lot of, this uh, a lot of the agendas of terrorism, especially with Arab fundamentalism that we saw in the uh, 1990s, are basically a response to foreign policy. However, throughout the whole decade of the 90s, and from my studies, is that from the state's perspective, it's basically that they're doing it because they're a Wahhabi-led ideology that basically hates the very nature of the United States because of religious indifference or atheistic uh, polytheism. But that's never the case. Take, for example, Ramzi Yusuf, uh, mm -hmm. in 1993, where he basically was allowed to speak for an hour during his sentencing. Nothing about women wearing short skirts, nothing about uh, uh, the United States being a Christian nation or an atheist nation. Everything to do with U.S. foreign policy with Israel. However, 
as bin Laden's noted, or Zawahiri, or Mohammed Atef, the military commander of Al-Qaeda, they gave dozens and dozens of interviews or declarations throughout the press where they basically talk about uh, the responses that they'll make, which is really unique in its own retrospect. I've studied foreign policy. I've studied terrorism uh, for a couple of years now. And I, I think it's very unique that the Arab fundamentalists will tell you why they're attacking you before they even attack you in, in hopes of changing the idea uh, in terms of uh, policy. And you mentioned in your book prominently that this misconception about how we deal with terrorism is almost a direct invitation for these people to attack us without changing uh, our foreign policy. Do you think that there is a a misconception even still today regarding how we deal with terrorism because of our ignorance regarding foreign policy? I, I think there's a couple of things to say here. I mean, the first thing is multiple things could be true. Right. So so terrorism is never monocausal um, and you can have political and personal and religion and ideational reasons for for, for wanting to fight people. Um, I don't think for a moment the reason we had a threat from Al Qaeda was because Bush say they hate us for our values or mm. our freedoms. I mean, that was not why obviously any of this was happening. And your analysis, I think, is is spot on. I mean, this was mostly about geopolitics and, and decline and decline of the, the Muslim world. Um uh, a comment that's often made about bin Laden is he paid an awful lot of lip service to to Israel and the occupation of Palestine, but never really did anything about it um, in terms of his own actions. And I think that's a fair critique. Um, but you could argue that's all about legitimacy. And that's all about linking what he's doing to a broader struggle. And, you know, at the end of the day, the Palestinian cause is seen in, you know, as a legitimate cause by large swathes of the world's population. So it's a great way to to, to hook your start uh, somebody else's car um so you, you could argue that's why that's in there but you're absolutely right terrorists very rarely start with terrorism there's a great quote from trotsky revolutions happen when there's no other way out um typically when you go back and study the history of a terrorist movement there have been plenty of potential off-ramps before it comes to the point where there is violence northern ireland's a great example of that before we had the Provisional IRA, we had the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. And as the name suggests, not a terrorist organization, a civil rights organization directly inspired by the civil rights organizations, uh, so the civil rights movement in the United States and Martin Luther King. Nonviolent marches, and one of the turning points for that nonviolent campaign for more Catholic rights in Northern Ireland was the brutal attack on a march at Burntollet Bridge by um, police and uh, auxiliary police, the B-specials. Um, and we know that, that um, the Devlins, for example, uh, Marianne, Devlin and, uh, Marianne Devlin and her sister were on that march, uh, Bernadette. And, you know, they, they, they talk about, you know, seeing the hatred in the eyes of the people attacking them and realizing we're not going to be able to negotiate with these people. We're not going to be able to reason with these people. Bobby Sands, the famous hunger striker, you know, he also talks about Burntollet Bridge being the moment where he realized compromise, there wasn't going to be a compromise. The only option they had was to, was to fight. And that's true, right? They were in a democracy where they have 40% of the votes. And you can't win anything with 40% of the votes in a democracy. It doesn't matter how fair the election is. And it wasn't wildly fair. I mean, it's a somewhat gerrymandered province. Um, and, you know, they were never going, there was no peaceful political path to becoming equal members of Northern Irish society. Um, it was as simple as that. So, and ironically, 
now we're in a situation where the majority of people in Northern Ireland are Catholics, you know, because of the demographic shift that's taken place in Northern Ireland over the last 40 years. So oddly enough, that that has reversed itself now um, and could become an increasing problem for the loyalist side. So the, these things are, you know, they, they, they nearly always are um, political causes that start in a nonviolent context that turn to violence because all the other outlets are blocked. Um, so, you know, there's an argument, you know, social constructivists would say there is an argument to be made that terrorist organizations are socially constructed by the states they oppose. And, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. I could ask a follow-up on that, Tom. What, what intrigued me in reading your book was it's obviously written from the perspective of advice to governments, to states about this is how there's a mishandling of terrorism. But I wondered, what would you say if you were approached by a young man who said, look, Tom, I'm, I'm thinking about getting into terrorism and you're an expert on this, but my situation in Palestine in 1960s Northern Ireland, or you're approached by Ramzi Youssef in 1991, and it's, I, I don't care, I don't want to hear about this morality stuff, okay? To me, it's we live in an us or them world and I choose us. Is this going to be an effective strategy or what else would I do at this point? What, because in Northern Ireland, some of the people involved in the um, civil rights movement think the whole IRA thing was a total like violent distraction from that and they would have ultimately got their goals uh, without the the deaths of thousands of people there uh, and people obviously debate the 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 virtues and vices of a nonviolent approach so what would you say to someone in that position who was considering becoming a terrorist so there's a a great Jimmy Stewart movie called Shenandoah about the American Civil War and he plays a farmer in the Shenandoah Valley who won't join sides and at one point during the movie, somebody asks him how the civil war is going. And he replies, and it's a brilliant reply. It's like all wars, the undertakers are winning it. Um, so what I would say is violence very rarely solves anything and very rarely delivers good outcomes for anyone. Um, the people who use it, the people who suffer it are on the receiving end of it. And very few good things come out of violence long term. The violent revolutions don't tend to give birth to stable states. So I think there's a lot of arguments to, to, to say to people that this violence is unlikely to bring you a happy outcome. And I think that that's true, um, both personally and you know, in terms of where you're hoping your society will go. Um, and of course, the other thing is nobody's vision. No one has a vision for society. The future of society is going to be accepted by the rest, everybody else and the rest of the population. Right. Um, you know, if you've got a national liberation movement at the moment, it's over. The question is, okay, which bit of the national liberation movement is now going to run the country? Think of the Iranian Revolution, right? There were communists involved in that. There were, you know, liberals involved in that. There was Ayatollah Khomeini and, and religious radicals. Well, what ultimately happened is a large number of groups who were involved in that revolution ultimately ended up being wiped out by the the um, the Shia establishment. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think ultimately. Um, the, the the bottom line for this is that violence begets violence and right. you are unlikely ever to end up with a profoundly positive outcome by picking up a weapon um and there are other effective strategies that have historically proven to work really really well and non-violence is one of them look at the civil rights movement in the states look at um uh the the uh, movement for indian independence and in, in gandhi you know, the, these were very, very effective strategies. There was violence in both of those cases as well by other actors. But the heavy lifting 
done to, towards achieving political change was done in large part by nonviolent opposition movements. So I, I think there are always other tools and those other tools have proven to be very effective in the past. So I think you can make a strong argument for them. Okay, thank you. Is there, a, let's talk about the response because you talked about in, in uh, part three of your book about countering terrorism within the human rights framework. And you start off with the, with the quote that uh, there is a profound and persistent belief in many national security establishments around the world that international legal regimes and human rights norms prohibit effective action against terrorism. And to compound that, you wrote that whether or not that uh, good governance alone can defeat terrorism is open for debate. But there can be little doubt that bad governance is a major contributing cause uh, in regards to terrorist violence. Can you expound on that for a little bit? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's nothing bad that's going to come from good governance. You know, it, it is an absolute good in itself. Mm. Defeat terrorism, I think that is a much more open question. And some people can be unhappy in well-governed societies. Um, so, you know, I, I can't say to you that good governance is a silver bullet because I don't think we can prove that. Um, we can say that it removes a very, very commonly cited cause of terrorist violence, which is bad governance, as you pointed out. Um, we know that human rights abuse is one of the major, if not the major drivers of terrorism. Um, you know, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world or who you talk to or whether you're looking at qualitative um, studies and biographies of people who are talking about why they personally got involved, or you're looking at big quantity, uh, quantitative studies, uh, like, for example, UNDP recently did a second version of its Journey to Extremism in Africa project, where it looked at a, a large number of individuals who've been involved in terrorist violence and, and sort of got an aggregate for the types of reasons why they said they got involved. And again, interestingly, they, they put it slightly differently to poor governance. They talked about a broken so, uh, social contract which is a subtly different way of making a similar point. Um, and they talked about human rights abuse and human rights abuse was the number one correlated, most correlated factor for why people became involved in uh, terrorism, both experiencing themselves or witnessing other people who they cared about suffering human rights abuse. Would, uh, let me talk about the reaction that you write about in the book too, regarding how to extract information from terrorists using, as the CIA would, I guess, uh, blanket the use of the word uh, torture with enhanced interrogation techniques, which is just a fancy word for torture, that you mentioned in one of the subchapters how the methods are uh, often controversial, but according to the various human rights organizations, it's banned to the severity of the application and that the proponents of torture uh, often contend that it gets results that cannot be obtained using lawful techniques. Because when you, in the earlier part of our talk today, you mentioned how the FBI with Ali Soufan and Mark Fallon, who I've interviewed before, in regards to how to, how they were talking with Abu Zubayd and they were getting results. As soon as the CIA heard about this, Tenet basically ran to President Bush and said that they need to take control of the situation. When they did, one of the first things they did was that they were going to rape his mother, put him in a coffin box, and then all of a sudden he shut down. In, in, in your, when you mentioned in the book about the use of torture and how it basically shut down 
all communication with terrorists. This basically impeded in the investigation of 9-11. And currently, as you mentioned before, we haven't even had a trial. And it's 22 years now. And uh, when I interviewed Ken Williams, who's the FBI agent out of Phoenix, in which he wrote about the Phoenix memo about how our fundamentals using uh, flight uh, flight training in, in, in Arizona. He says that he went to Guantanamo Bay and he says that, and this is two years ago, he basically said that there wasn't going to be a trial. They're going to work a deal. And if that happens, we'll never know what happened. Well, we'll never know in the next 30, 40 years what the government had, what they didn't have. Is this the fear that we're having today? Well, first off, almost every conviction secured at Guantanamo so far has been a plea deal. I think there's only one case that's gone through a complete trial. Uh, and here's the dirty secret about Guantanamo, right? You you don't get off the island by winning your case, right? You're not being held on the island because you're a suspected war criminal, which is what the the war the the military commissions is looking at. You're being held on the island because you're a prisoner of war. That doesn't change if you're innocent or guilty of what you've been accused of in the military commissions. So if you want to get off the island, the only way you're guaranteed to get off the island is not by winning your case. It's by reaching a plea deal with the United States government, right? Because you can be found innocent and they can say, well, okay, so you're not a war criminal, but we do think you're a member of Al-Qaeda, so you're staying, right? So if you want guaranteed to get off the island, you have to do a deal. Um, and that's already where we are. Um, so yeah, I, I do think the only way that any of these cases are going to be closed based on the last 20 years is that they will be closed by plea deals. And, you know, people tend not to say terribly incriminating things in plea deals. Um, I don't know that that necessarily results in getting the truth. Um, if you look at the nine, I mean, I, I was there the first day of the, the hearings, as I said, on 9-11. On I remember one of the um, defendants, I forget which one it was now, folding a paper airplane and putting it on his um, the little stick microphone in front of him and then turning and smiling at the 9-11 families, right? Um, I remember Khalid Sheikh Mohammed asking for the, the charges to be read out in Arabic as he sat there and read an article in The Economist because his English is that good, right? I mean, the, the, this, is, this is not a process where we are winning. <laughs> this is a process that has become a... How do you, how do you describe it? I mean, it's, it, it's become a self-licking ice cream cone. It's a process for process's sake. Um, you know, it should never have been created. It was a dumb idea at the beginning. It's a dumb idea now. Um, and it's very, very hard to see how there will be any outcome to where we are right now that will be satisfying for any of the victims' families um, or be value for money for the United States government, the American people. I mean, taxpayers have poured huge amounts of money into Guantanamo and will continue to have to do so for, you know, for probably for decades to come, unless somebody grasps the nettle and comes up with a plan to close it where you won't get everything you want. Um, I, I can remember going to a meeting very early on in the Obama administration when they were determined to close Guantanamo. And essentially, you had three categories of prisoner, right? You had the people that everybody was convinced were there for the wrong reasons, didn't do anything they wanted to return. And that was the vast majority. You know, the worst of the worst turned out to be 700 innocent people and maybe some other guys. Um, of the other guys, there were about 20 or 30 people they thought they could prosecute. And there were about 30 people that they were convinced were bad actors, were terrorists, bad people who they couldn't prosecute. So if you wanted to close Guantanamo, the only thing that ultimately mattered was what were you going to do with the 30 people you thought were terrorists who you couldn't prosecute? And unfortunately, in the real world, in the world of laws, there is only one way to deal with that, which is if you can't prosecute them, you release them.
And unless you're prepared to grasp that nettle, which I cannot imagine any American president wanting to take the political risk of doing, you're not closing Guantanamo. And that's where we are. So in response to terrorism, it seems that there's very few programs left in defeating it. But one program I want to get your thoughts on, because you mentioned about the de-radicalization process. Um, in, one, in, in chapter three, you mentioned that the de-radicalization program and the effectiveness of these programs and how disengagement and de-radicalization initiatives have become an integral part of many countries' counterterrorism strategies. In one particular, when, when I read this, I immediately thought of the de-radicalization process uh, regarding former Abu Sayyaf um, members. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems to be working there. Is that one of the, uh, uh, is, is that such a program that could actually work in regards to how we do it here? Yeah, I, I mean, there are, there are a variety of de-radicalization programs that there were around the world, and, and they've had a, a variety of um, successes and some failures. Nothing's 100%. Nothing can guarantee only one outcome, reformed people. Um, but the recidivism, the recidivism rates from most DDRR programs, um, um, disarmament, demobilization, uh, rehabilitation, and reintegration programs are pretty good. Um, but the problem for a lot of terrorism policy is we live in a zero-sum world when it comes to terrorism. Um, and, you know, pretty good is often not good enough for political, particularly in a democracy, for policymakers who have to own the failures. Um, and that's a challenge. But yeah, absolutely. A lot of people get involved in terrorism organizations for banal reasons. They get involved because of their family connections, you know, the social networks they move in. They're not necessarily particularly committed. They might be very young. They typically are very young. They're typically going to be between sort of 17 and 24. People grow out of it. People, you know, a lot of reasons why people often say they want to leave terrorism. And I, I looked at a lot of different stories. Some people leave because they want to get married. I, there's a great, there's a member of the Italian Red Brigades who said, I, I left because I wanted to have a dog. <laughs> you know, he couldn't, he couldn't imagine a world living underground where he had a dog. Um, you know, people... It, 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 often in the agent running business, we talk about three moments of vulnerability when it's always worth pitching somebody, when they turn 30, um, when they have their first child and when they get married, right? Because people's horizons have broadened and their interests have moved. Um, so you have an opportunity, you know, when they are looking at having a life after the movement to bring that person, find a political exit strategy for them. The Italians did this very successfully with something called the Penatiti program um where they basically created two categories of uh prisoner uh big penititi and little penititi grande and piccolo um basically if you gave them intelligence um you got a big reduction in your sentence and if you disassociate yourself you got a smaller reduction in your sentence and that was really really powerful a lot of ideologically driven terrorist movements also age out um it's very different with national liberation movements because if you are you know, occupied, if you're a part of a colony, um, you know, until that goes away, there are always going to be young men who, you know, if, if, if the situation is is repressive, who want to fight against it. So that can go on for generations. But, you know, communism, Islamic extremism, there, there's a shelf life. If you talk about it for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years and you don't deliver what you've been promising, people will look for a new idea. Um, and that that's true on the right, it's true on the left, it's true with religion. 
So there's also a sense that um, ultimately, and we're seeing that I think now with Islamic extremism, that ideas when they fail to deliver ultimately wither away and people look for something new. Um, and most terrorist organizations last, at, uh, terrorist movements last for at most 30 years. And most go a lot quicker than that. Thanks for listening, everyone. We ran out of time before we ran out of questions. So Tom has agreed to come back on in the near future. If there's anything you think we should ask, please do leave a comment.